This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The national defense strategy really focuses us on near-peer competitors. The U.S. government, in fact, increased its contribution to WFP in order to assist. Everything that we do in space, a lot of it can be applied to our life on Earth. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. Her Excellency Atifeta Yayaga served as the fourth president of the Republic of Kosovo. Not only the first woman to hold the office, but also the first woman head of state in the modern Balkans. Elected in April 2011, she was also the country's first nonpartisan candidate. One of President Yayaga's main initiatives was to rehabilitate and reintegrate survivors of sexual violence from the war with Serbia. In March 2014, she established the National Council for Survivors of Sexual Violence during the war in Kosovo, coordinating body to provide legal remedies to survivors of wartime sexual violence. President Yayaga joined us here at CSIS on January 30th, 2019 for a Smart Women, Smart Power conversation with moderator Nina Easton. Nina is a CSIS senior associate and the chair of Fortune Most Powerful Women International. They discussed gendered perspectives in decision-making, how rape was used as a weapon of war in Kosovo, and how the country is now helping survivors of sexual violence. This event is made possible through support from City. So I want to share with the audience a little moment from backstage where we had, we had a power woman moment with Madam Ambassador from Albania and Madam Ambassador from Kosovo. I want to welcome you both here uh, to honor the president as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm sure you, even in this room, are, like most Americans, don't know a lot about Kosovo. So I took the opportunity to ask Madam Ambassador from Kosovo a little bit more about the country. Um, it's two years younger than Twitter. That's a, a nice little fact. And it's, um, while majority Muslim, it's quite multicultural. And you shared with me that Mother Teresa was actually from Kosovo. So, Two interesting facts to start the evening. Madam President, we are so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much, Nina. It's such a pleasure for me to be here. So before we get into it, really, what was really a journey for you, a personal journey as well as a political journey on the issue of sexual violence and rape as a weapon of war, Let's talk about a little bit about your background. You grew up um, in the former Yugoslavia. Tell us about your childhood and what your parents did. Uh, well, no, thank you very much. And uh, I'm really delighted to, to be with you this afternoon. And uh, it is uh, truly my honor to be a part of the Smart Women and Smart uh, Power this discussion series. And I want to use this opportunity and thank Madam Higgs uh, and the CSIS for the invitation. At the same time, I want to uh, congratulate Madam Higgs and her extraordinary 
Library uh, team uh, for uh, their continuous efforts to bring together uh, women leaders from around uh, the world to be able to share their ideas, to be able to share their uh, best uh, practices, and to highlight time and again the importance of the uh, women inclusion uh, into the policy uh, into the process of the policy making and into the process of the decision making. So thank you very much for offering this platform for many women leaders around the world. Well, how was my youth actually? Well, uh, dear Nina, uh, unfortunately, uh, my youth has been uh, definitely shaped uh, by many of the uh, things and the surroundings that were taking place, uh, uh, starting from the political and all the way down to the uh, other hostilities that we were able and that we have fortunate to live as the young people and as the child during that time. But neither my you, uh, neither myself, uh, neither the, the entire generation of my time had a different youth than I did uh, during that time. While the beginning of the uh, 90s, uh, for many countries in the Europe, uh, or some many countries in the Europe started to celebrate the uh, democracy and the fall of the uh, repressive regimes, for us in the Balkans, a new dark and bloody period was about to start. Uh, Kosovo that time was a part of the former Yugoslavia, while for the ethnical, religious differences and for the territorial ambitions, neighbors were turned into the sworn enemies. Uh, during the repression time and during the Milosevic regime, the situation was getting only worse and worse uh, for each and everyone who was living in Kosovo that time, till that point that for our families was even harder to be, uh, even impossible, uh, even to secure for the basic needs. Uh, because all of the decisions about us were made in Belgrade, and most of those decisions, or better saying that all of those decisions were only discriminating us uh, further. And so how did so that affect you on a personal level, like your day-to-day -day life and your family's actually, life? Actually, as a child yeah. and as the young girl, uh, my entire life has been shaped uh, through this, uh, going through this repression regime that I simply, neither me, neither my uh, other generation fellow citizens, we barely had a, 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 a life or we barely had a youth or the, or the childhood in this kind of the periods. And it was, not, it was even hard not to be aware what was going on. For instance, we as the Kosovo Albanians, we were not permitted even to attend the public schools because we have been segregated uh, by the the uh, Serbian students from all levels of the uh, education. And uh, in be before the 1997, before the conflict has erupted, uh, for over almost one decade, uh, uh, we have been obliged to establish the parallel system of education uh, where we as students and our professors, uh, we were conducting all of our classes in uh, private houses in so-called makeshift uh, schools. And many of our family members and many of the Albanian families 
put their own life in danger by opening the doors of their houses, knowing very well that soon they will be prosecuted by that time regime, by the police, military and paramilitary uh, forces. And I can tell you that in my time, over 100,000 students were permanently moved into over 3,200 uh, houses, basement and garage which were turned into the uh, temporary uh, school facilities. And no matter how hard situation it was, nothing could put in the question mark our eagerness to learn. And I remember very vividly, and I remember that time that in my class we were about over 48 students in a smaller room, which was not even a classroom, which had no doors, it had no uh, windows, because they Serbian police and paramilitary military forces were coming, were breaking everything out. Uh, they were beating us up. They were beating our teachers and sometimes taking one or two of us and sometimes most, uh, some of them, to never return anymore uh, back. And so in Did this January... Did you witness January, this? Did you see this? Oh, I witnessed, I witnessed yeah. uh, every, almost every second day. And I remember that two times uh, I myself had a boot boots of the police officers in my neck lying in the ground of that classroom or How that room. Were you? Uh, I was in my second year of the uh, secondary school, and so we were very young uh, during uh, that time, and we had very limited access into the books in Albanian, uh, because the books in Albanian were banned from the circulation uh, during uh, that time. And while my dear friends, for many of you going to school and coming back to school, supposed to be a normal routine for us during this time, it was the moment that we traded mostly, that we feared mostly. So were you in uh, physical fear? It was like, continuous was for the years, for entire my secondary school and in entire term of my uh, university. And we, especially for our parents, that they had the most fear because of their own children. And we had continuously this big questions for ourselves that we had had not even an answer to that. Uh, would, we, uh, would we be caught? Would we be prosecuted? Or would we make it at home at the end of the day? That's really, that's quite um, something to have to survive. I mean, yeah, because we have been deprived from a basic right, from the right of the education, from the right of the quality education from that time regime. But you finished school and you went to law school. Why? Uh, well, before uh, going to answering to why I joined, uh, decided to join to the uh, uh, law, and I would like to say that a few words uh, how actually the war has affected yeah. in all of us, and especially in my generation. And, uh, ambassadors a generation as well that uh, definitely has had a huge impact on me and each and every one who has experienced the war and has lived through the war uh, can attest to that war changes your perspective on almost everything and especially about the security which we do not take it uh, for granted mm -hmm. uh, war has left a very deep 
uh, consequences uh, for our country and our people. And 20 years ago, my dear ladies and gentlemen, we have inherited a country that has been totally destroyed, not only from the infrastructure point of view, but especially from the human lives. 20 years ago, we have inherited a country which has left behind over 13,000 people killed and massacred. An estimated number of 20,000 women and men raped, where rape has been used as a tool of war, and about 1,600 people missing till today's date in the massive graves within the territory of Kosovo and the territory of Serbia. And for the continuous 20 years, the denial approach by our northern neighbor of Serbia to cooperate with the institutions of Kosovo uh, to share the information, to share the maps and the statistics of these mass graves where the remains of our loved ones are. So the wounds are very deep, the consequences has been uh, very deep, uh, but surviving it has given us hope and has given us a courage to be able to maintain that hard-won peace that we all know very well that the war does not end it only when the bombing ends. The consequences are much longer than we think of that. Yeah, there's reference so, to the Kosovo generation, mm -hmm. your generation. I mean, yeah. just, just take us back into that, again, day to day. What was your life like? It was How long was the war and what was your life like? Uh, well, uh, the war itself took over two and a half years, and while the repression time took over two decades, uh, that was continuous repression from the Milosevic regime mm -hmm. uh, towards uh, the uh, old people of Kosovo and the institutions of our country. And uh, I personally uh, lived my entire uh, life in Kosovo. I lived through the repression time, and I lived uh, also during the war time. And uh, only uh, during the uh, major bombing in, 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 uh, May, uh, in Pristina, in the capital city, uh, I never forget that we, together with my mom, my father, and uh, my brother, uh, we were locked in our uh, apartment, uh, mainly in the uh, bathrooms, because it is surrounded with much concrete uh, there, and we were staying for over th uh, four months, not being able even to see the daylight or even to go outside. So we will not even give the signal that there is a living human beings in in these locations because my parents were afraid of my life mm -hmm. and the life of uh, my brother at mm -hmm. that time. So going back to your point why I chose law and why I chose then uh, to uh, join to my uh, other career. Uh, well, as a young student uh, of that time, uh, I had uh, uh, to live and to witness the first hand the inequality, oppression, and deprivation of all rights. And living under the Milosevic regime and living uh, through the time when thousands of the uh, Kosovar uh, Albanian men and women, that they were dared to think differently, that they were soon to be facing with uh, the strong and the ruthless hand of the uh, regime of that time, which many of them became the politicians 
political prisoners that uh, in many of the human report human rights reports of that time they were stating that uh, and witnessing that uh, most of those uh, uh, political prisoners they were even denied the right for the fair trial and so living through my entire life uh, through this injustice uh, that was I was exposed that my family has been uh, exposed and my fellow citizen which was becoming unbearable I have decided to join towards uh, uh, the law and uh, I have uh, made not only myself but my entire generation has made a promise and a pledge to ourselves that whatever we have gone through we will never ever allow to happen to anyone not anymore in that part of the world in our country and so the darkest period of our country has ended uh, with the humanitarian intervention of uh, uh, NATO which has paved the way uh, for the liberation of Kosovo at the same time setting the foundation for the declaration for the uh, establishing of the new institutions of uh, Kosovo and by doing that to establish the new Kosovo police organization and immediately after the end of the war back in in 2000, I was a young graduated lawyer, very passionate about the future uh, of our country, the new page which was flipping for uh, our country. I started to work for the United Nations office in uh, Kosovo. And telling you the truth, immediately after the end of the work, work, to work for one international organization was one of the best jobs that you could hope it be immediately after the end of the war. So I I decided after a few months of working for the UN to quit my job uh, by not only quitting for my salary for 20 times more, uh, but I did for two reasons. One, to be a part of that positive change that was about to happen for our country. And second one, uh, to be able uh, to be a part of the change for one institution, which the role of the women uh, has, uh, viewed, has been viewed with a big question mark uh, towards the institution that I was about to join. And so in my entire life, uh, Nina and my dear friends here, I have been in search for uh, freedom, for equality, and for justice. And I consider that momentum would be the right momentum to give my contribution in creating more just and more inclusive uh, Kosovo, which would give an equal opportunity to each and every citizen of our country. And uh, the joining and creating the new Kosovo police organization uh, has been a part of that. And so it has been a quite daunting uh, process, it has been very uh, uh, intensive and a quite challenging uh, period for two reasons. One reason is because the police organization uh, during the wartime and before the war has been more viewed as an organization that was a part of the state, was 
a tool of state. Mm -hmm. It was tool of the repression. And in the eyes of our people, in the eyes of our citizens, especially the Kosovo Albanians, uh, when they see the uniform of the police, what they've seen is they've seen torture, they've seen prosecution, and they've seen killing, instead of seeing somebody which is there to serve you and to protect you. And so this was a part of the challenge to be able to change the mindset of the people of Kosovo about the newly created police organization that is there to serve them, that is there to protect them. To bring security to, to an insecure situation. To bring yeah. security in a very insecure uh, situation and which is across the board, no matter of your ethnic ethnical background or no matter of your religious background, especially that from the very beginning the Kosovo police organization was created in the base that our country it is being established as a very multi-ethnic organization which has opened its arms to in include each and everyone from our uh, society. The second challenge has been to introduce the role of the women within the police organization. Uh, where uh, before the war there were no women in uniform within the police organization because Kosovo, like the rest of the southeastern part of the Europe, as we refer to uh, many times as uh, uh, Western Balkans, and maybe it's not different from many other countries in the world, uh, uh, is quite uh, a male-dominated society, very patriarchal uh, society, and the job for the uh, the police was not seen as a job for the women. And so I wanted to change that perception uh, regarding the role of the women within the police organization. Uh, by being one of the very first women to join the police organization, uh, which uh, it has been quite of the challenge on itself, which has been viewed uh, from uh, one part of the society with uh, quite of the optimism and with kind of the positive approach, uh, seeing the role of the women within the police organization. Uh, while at the same time, uh, you had the other skeptics that they have been uh, resisting in a way, the presence of the women within the police organization, that that job that simply is not for the uh, women, that job is more for the man that has a muscles and they can really uh, uh, protect their society. But it has shown only within the first two years of the inclusion of the women within the Kosovo police, uh, that the role of the women has contributed in increasing the percentage of the trust of the, poli uh, of the uh, people perception towards the police organization and so Kosovo police has been and continues to be one of the most trusted institution in the country and the women has played definitely a crucial role and so that's why I have decided to join the law that's why I have just decided to join uh, towards the police organization and for me has been an utmost uh, honor and pleasure that I was able to serve to that organization but at the end of the day to serve to my country and my people so you broke a barrier going into in the police, and then you broke a barrier again, becoming the first female president in this male-dominated um, society. What would be your advice to women following you in doing the same? Um, 
Well, it's true that um, when I was elected as the president of Kosovo, uh, and our ambassador can attest to that, uh, country was uh, facing with uh, and going through a deep political, economical, and the social crisis. Uh, one year before my election, the Constitutional Court of Kosovo ruled down two precedents uh, for the violation of the uh, Constitution. And uh, when uh, definitely my election has been uh, viewed with uh, uh, quite of the skepticism uh, by, by many of the power holders of the, that time, but at the same time has given so much hope, uh, especially uh, towards the uh, women and towards the young people of the country and towards the marginalized uh, uh, groups. And uh, so uh, the only advice that I have always given to all of the women, not only in my country and uh, wider, has been that uh, each and every one of them needs to believe on themselves. This needs to believe on their potential and never ever make a compromise with the values which they stand for and what they believe on that. So let's turn to the question of sexual violence and rape because um, it was a personal journey for you in actually facing this. You've got a war crime that carries such a stigma that it is, it's very difficult to address. You didn't even turn to the issue until, what, your third year as president? What, what made you well, Nina, take this on? Well, Nina, it is uh, slightly different, actually. Um, it was literally the very first uh, three weeks when I was elected as the president of Kosovo uh, that I came across uh, to meet the first uh, the survivors of the sexual uh, violence in Kosovo. As a citizen of Kosovo, as a woman of Kosovo, I was aware that uh, this crime has happened in our country, especially because of my background as a rule of law, that I was aware, but I did not become aware uh, up to that level till the time that I have met for the first time the survivors of the sexual violence uh, in uh, one uh, town uh, which is in the heart of our country, which after I met them, uh, Nina, and even now that I talk, I have major emotions uh, because it changed me forever. Not only as a woman of that country, but also as the president leading that highest office in my country. When I met a mother that she was raped exactly the same day with her three daughters. She was only 37 years of age. Her oldest daughter was 17. The other daughter was 15. And the youngest one was 13. Her mother happened to be that day visiting her there. And without being able to cope what has happened to her daughter and granddaughters, she went outside, jumped into the well of water, and committed suicide. I met a mother that she was six months pregnant when this has happened to her. She miscarried the child and she never had the chance 
of becoming a mother again. I met a mother that she was kept a hostage in an abandoned factory in that same village for over six months with her five children and in-laws, raping her every single day in front of her children, in front of her in-laws. Three times she tried to commit suicide by drinking chemicals. And the day when the paramilitary and the police forces were ordered to leave that location, they even raped her five years old daughter. So after speaking to those 35 women that day in that room, and 350 more, and 3,000 more, as the months were going on in my office, it changed me forever. Were they able, Which, to, were they willingly telling you these stories? They were ready to very talk very, about it. I remember the first because it was their initiative to, to get in contact with me. It was literally the very first day when I took over the office when my protocol has uh, said to me that there is a woman there that is continuously calling and trying to talk to you directly, uh, but we cannot pass the phone to you. And I said, like, uh, who is this woman? And why you are not passing the phone? Because the protocol doesn't allow to pass the phone unverified people. And what's her story, please? I asked the chief of protocol that time. And he said, she said that she's raped you in the wartime. I said, like, stop it now. I said, just pass the line to me. But I said, there is no but. Just pass the line on my desk. So I pick up the phone. And there was a lady in the other side of the war said like, am I talking to the president? I said like, yes, it's the president. I said like, no, it's one of the, her staff. I said like, just please pass me the president. I said, calm down, it's the president. And she goes, no, this is not your voice. I don't know. I said, I don't know how my voice is coming through the phone, <laughs> but it is me, it is the president. Can I please hear your story? And she goes, you need to come and meet me and 30 other women from my village. And you have to listen what we have gone through because this is the only chance that we have 13 years after the end of the war that we have the feeling that you as a woman, that one of us can listen to our suffering and to listen to our demands and can be fighting for our rights. And so this is how I started immediately to deal. And I knew it, that this is going to be, and I made it actually one of my top priorities in the office as the president uh, to be dealing with the status of the survivors of the sexual violence during the war, to bring them peace and to bring them the justice for those 13 years. And, and the sto their stories, let's fill out their stories a little bit. Obviously, you talked about what happened with the raped. What was the fallout with the men in their lives, with pregnancies from rape? What, what, what has transpired in those yeah. women's lives afterwards? Uh, well, before going this, uh, to this, um, well, as soon as I uh, heard these women, I came back to the office, and I have asked my entire team in the office uh, to um, analyze thoroughly my competencies 
and to shake out the entire constitution and to find the way which will give me the power to act on this matter. Because I don't know how many of you have been, uh, they, you were able to read about Kosovo. Kosovo is a parliamentary democracy where the executive power falls under the parliament, under the government, legislative under the parliament, while the president is responsible for the foreign policy and the national security. So, legally speaking and constitutionally speaking, I had no power to act on this particular uh, matter. At the same time, I was facing with a tremendous refusal uh, by the entire institutions of our country because simply I could not believe that first we as the institution and then as the society of Kosovo, for over 13 years we have kept this topic as the taboo topic that we have continuously built into the stigma around the survivors of the sexual uh, violence that we couldn't do that we didn't do nothing whatsoever to elevate their pain that the survivors of the sexual violence they have been uh, going uh, through that we have unjustly covered them with this veil of shame and uh, in unjustly pointing the fingers towards the uh, them as the survivors instead of pointing the fingers towards the, the perpetrators of these horrendous crimes. And how come that we as the institutions of Kosovo, while we have taken all of our uh, obligation towards all other survivors of the war, we simply we did not take the responsibility for this survivors of the sexual uh, uh, violence. And so many of them, or majority of them, have been living in a tremendous so, uh, bad social uh, condition because uh, some of them, they have been abandoned from family uh, due to the stigma and due to the, uh, the way how, uh, the, how the, the sexual violence has been say, uh, seen by our general public in a way kind of like that was, they were our shame instead of consider them the way that they supposed to be considered as our heroes, as our heroines uh, of the war. Because while each and every one of us, we have been enjoying our liberty and our freedom in the hearts and minds of each and every survivor, there is still a war. Like each and every one of them says to me, even now that I talk to them, Madam President, every time that we turn the light off and we go to sleep, these horrendous scenes come back to us. We have no peace in our hearts and mind before we see whoever has conducted this crime to be facing with the justice. We did not recognize that their bodies were turned into the battlefield, and we did not recognize that the rape has been used as a tool of war. None of the international organization that was present in Kosovo, that it is present in Kosovo, did not recognize and is still not recognizing, even as today's day that we are speaking for 20 years after the end of the war. Every springtime that the Secretary General of United Nations published the report of the violence against women, they do not include Kosovo and 20,000 uh, women of Kosovo that have been raped during the wartime, that the rape has been used as a tool of war. Why is that that even the UN? Because of the political reason, because Kosovo is a not member state of United Nations. 
So, can you imagine the organization which is called to protect the human rights? It is, in a way, violating the International Convention for the Human Rights. Wow. So let's go back to you trying to do something about this. You're president. You've heard these stories. Talk about the pushback you got as you tried to bring justice. Well, I became aware back in 2011 immediately, as I said, after I was elected as a president. And it took me over two and a half years. As a matter of fact, it was the first try uh, was when we organized the uh, Global Summit of Women, uh, myself together with Secretary Albright that time, uh, in October 2012. And as an, a result of this Global Summit of Women, when we had about 190 countries around the world, women leaders participating in uh, Pristina, as an outcome, we taken so-called Pristina principles. And one of the very first topics in this Pristina principle was uh, to recognize the status of the survivors of the sexual violence as the civilian victims of the war. And so to my biggest surprise, I remember it was literally a month and a half after in December of 2012, we sent these uh, principles to be passed in the Parliament of Kosovo as the resolution in the Parliament of Kosovo and amending the law on the war values and incorporating the survivors of the sexual violence as the civilian victims of the war. I could not believe to myself, and the ambassador was time a minister in our government, uh, about the level of the debate that took part in uh, my country, that took part in our own parliament, that 13, and that time actually was 14 years after the end of the war, that we had the members of the parliament, that they were even raising the fingers to propose to conduct the gynecological testing towards each and every survivor of the sexual violence. So that was reaching the boiling point yeah. for me and my office and all other women leaders in the country that what is enough, it is enough. We cannot continue stigmatizing them more uh, because of certain of the uh, uh, moral and uh, uh, norms in our uh, country. And so it took me over two and a half years to analyze where the large legal team in my office and outside of my office uh, were in a way shaking the, the, the constitution to find me the proper legal base. And uh, back in 2014, I established the National Council for the Sexual Violence, uh, which was the platform established with a special decree by the president, chaired by myself at that time, which brought around the same decision-making uh, table, the prime minister, the president of the parliament, certain ministers, members of the parliament, uh, the civil society, uh, members of the international organization, organization, diplomatic corps, and the media. And within one month of the work of the National Council, 
the law on the uh, recognizing the status of the uh, victims of the sexual violence as the civilian victims of the war has been passed in the parliament of Kosovo with the majority of the votes in our uh, parliament. So no matter of the opposition that we have been facing mainly by the main politician that time, that their only argument was that the people are not ready, Madam President, to open this chapter of our uh, painful history. But apparently they were very much wrong, that the people were ready. Who was not ready? It was certain political uh, leaders and the power holders, that they were not sure how the people will be reacting uh, towards that. Because I remember as soon as we passed the law in the parliament of Kosovo, and what kind of echo this has had, not only among the survivors of the sexual violence because for the first time after 15 years after the end of the war uh, they felt that they have been able to breathe freely and that, that their sacrifice for war has been recognized and that they are not anymore in a way stigmatized and it's not anymore only the taboo topic but they are being treated as the heroines as they are of our uh, country and so at the same time we have acted in the all other levels uh, with their reintegration, rehabilitation, and resocialization, and uh, all the way down to the access or to the economic empowerment as the part of the rehabilitation and resocialization uh, processes. In this, uh, I had a huge partnership as well while I was having the other opposition, where in the beginning when I started this topic, uh, none of the political uh, class was supporting me, neither the parliament, neither the government, uh, only few of the women organizations that I have been and I continuously uh, be grateful that they were the only open door to them, uh, to these survivors after the end of the war. When we as the institution has failed them, they were the one that opened the door, uh, starting from the medical services and all the way down to the psychological uh, uh, service that they have provided uh, to them. And then we have rather the Women Caucus, where the, our ambassador was a part of that. We have engaged the women uh, uh, ministers that time. And so to create a totally different momentum that was immediately reflecting positively also in the way how the general public was percepting a rape which has been used as a tool of war uh, towards uh, Kosovo. But something that has not been addressed properly and is still uh, one of the main handicaps for Kosovo and the survivors of the sexual violence, but it is a handicap in a global level, is the culture of impunity. Uh, since the end of the war, we do not have not even a single perpetrator that has been uh, put forward to the justice, neither in the courts of Kosovo, neither the courts of uh, uh, Serbia, neither at the international uh, uh, courts for the crime or where the rape has been used as a tool of war. So this culture of impunity that is dominating in Kosovo, it is undermining or putting under the shadow all of the success that we were able to achieve for this over five years of the intensive work and coordination with all of other stakeholders in the country. And rightly, many of the reports today's date are referring that Kosovo is one of the best success stories when you speak about the survivors of the sexual 
of violence. What we have done for this past uh, five years that has not been done even in the Bosnia case, neither in the African countries or in the Middle East uh, countries, uh, but this culture of impunity and having Serbia to be more accountable and to be more responsible for the crimes that that, that time regime has done in Kosovo. I'm afraid that that uh, success will be able to slide back uh, in case if Serbia or the international community will not hold Serbia accountable for the crimes that they have conducted unjustly towards the innocent people of Kosovo. So I wanted to turn to the audience and um, get your questions ready. We'll come around and collect them and, and ask them. Um, so Madam President, uh, you raised this excellent question. It, particularly as a former police commissioner, there's two sides of this equation. There's recognizing victims, um, and then the other side, though, is bringing um, criminals, rapists, to, to justice. And um, how do you get there? How do you get there in any of the situations that we see around the world today? Um, well, uh, unfortunately, um, the rape being used as a tool of war, it's uh, continuously being used and it's a widespread around the world. And as we speak... And let me this stop is you right there because I did want to ask this. Like, why is it so effective? Why, it is, it's, a, it's a form of terror. It is. It is in a way. And so as we speak today, this is happening in Syria, it is happening in South Sudan, it is happening in the Central African Republic, it's happening in Yemen. And what is even worse, it is that the uh, survivors are being further punished instead of walking the other way around, where because of this culture of the impunity which is dominating globally, and with this lack of the global leadership into keeping the countries accountable and responsible for the crimes that has been conducted, there is so much that can be done. And there is so much things that can be easily done. But we should also not forget that each and every country, they have their own specification, starting from the cultural and all the way down to the political context. But two things that has to be immediately and should be always when you're faced with these matters to be addressed are, first of all, is documentation and tackling the culture of impunity. And second one is uh, the prevention and tackling the grassroots of of the, uh, of the uh, violence against the women in general. Something that all of the countries, ev everywhere that we have the violence against women, are, uh, are failing to, uh, to do their job properly. But who is failing mostly is the international organization, is the international community, uh, holding these countries accountable uh, to that. And when I'm in this point, I just want uh, uh, to appreciate the activism and the championship of uh, two of, I'm calling them the heroes of this century, uh, Nadia Murat and uh, uh, Dr. Denis Mugwege, that they have been uh, that voice 
uh, of reason on behalf of all of the survivors around uh, the world. Recognize the sacrifice, no matter from which corner of the world they are coming uh, from, and uh, the tasks and the responsibilities each and every organization has when they deal with the survivors of the sexual violence. That has been heard well and accepted even by the uh, Nobel Prize uh, Committee on behalf of all the survivors of the sexual violence. So we need more this kind of the heroes. We need more of these champions to be able to speak on behalf of the survivors of the sexual violence. But as much as we build in this culture of impunity, I'm afraid that we are just making steps backwards. You do? We, yeah. If if you don't bring perpetrators in front of the justice, and if you don't hold uh, uh, the countries and the regimes accountable for this, then how you can make the steps forward? So speaking of being a voice for the voiceless, I wanted to, um, Madam President has put together this incredible book on st memory stories about women survivors of sexual violence in Kosovo. This is not yet available here, but, um, we're hoping to get a publisher for you in New York. <laughs> um, and there's also this lovely and very powerful painting uh, done by a survivor. You, did you want to talk about that a minute? Um, yes, please. Actually, starting from the book, I Want to Be Heard. Actually, it is one of the general message that the survivors of the sexual violence in Kosovo and everywhere in the world they want. Uh, because what the survivors around the world they need is just an ear that they can heard their requirements and their demands and the voice that can speak on their behalf. And this book is the collections of many stories uh, of the survivors of the sexual violence uh, throughout the country, which I supported and I did a foreword uh, for this book. And fortunately, it's still in a very limited copy within our country, uh, but uh, I was promised here that uh, they will try to help me and help the women of Kosovo uh, to find a way to find the publisher here uh, that we can make their voice uh, to be heard more because we need their voices to be heard and what they have been suffering and living through for this uh, past 20 years after the end of the war. And the painting, when I took off your offer to come here and speak to your wonderful uh, audience, uh, just the first, uh, the last uh, week of the uh, December, I have attended an exhibition which was supported by the UN Women in Kosovo uh, with three uh, non-governmental organization, uh, women, non women non-governmental organization in uh, Pristina, where a part of the uh, rehabilitation process was also uh, the way how the survivors of the sex sexual violence would be expressing that moment how they are feeling through the painting. And so many of our very well-known artists in the country, uh, they came to work one-in-one -one with the survivors of the sexual violence in Kosovo. And I selected, and all of the money of the selling of this uh, 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 
paintings uh, was going back into the economic empowerment and further treatment of the survivors of the sexual violence. So I purchased this, purchased this one, which has uh, the message of that is that uh, it is a way of looking forward and the peace that we want to get it back for ourselves and for the rest of the survivors. And I wanted to bring it to you uh, in order to have it in your uh, 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 institute here, that uh, the voice of other survivors of the sexual violence will continue to be heard and uh, seen uh, by many of your guests here. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, our first question from the audience, you talk about holding perpetrators accountable and we talk about international organizations not doing enough. What specifically has to change in the international community? What specifically would needs to be done to bring perpetrators to justice on the international level? Uh, well, <clears throat> starting from our own case, as I said, uh, that since the end of the war, we do not have even a single uh, perpetrator uh, that has been brought to the justice. While Was there an attempt made? Uh, there have been hundreds and thousands of attempts. There have been hundreds of cases that has been built since the end of the war in Kosovo. As we speak today, we have the first survivors of the sexual violence that she has spoken publicly in Kosovo uh, back in October. And she was one of the very first ladies uh, that uh, she reported her case immediately after the end of the war because she was 16 years old when she was taken from her house, raped by the police forces uh, for a couple of times and then brought back uh, at home. And uh, immediately, at, at the, as soon as the war has been ended, back in 1999, she went and reported the case together with her entire family uh, because she had all of the proofs and all of the evidences in her hand available, even knowing by face and by name the perpetrators mm -hmm. because they were uh, some of them, they were neighbors, and others, yeah. they knew with them mm -hmm. uh, by the uh, name that they were referring to themselves or to the rank that they have been referring uh, during the, the time that they were doing that action of a crime towards uh, her. And so that case has been dropped. Uh, by the uh, international uh, judges and prosecutors in Kosovo for the lack of the evidence. So that's why I said the documentation, it is very important. Holding the countries accountable and the international organization, for example, Serbia, since the end of the war in Kosovo, is refusing to cooperate with the institutions of Kosovo to extradite uh, these perpetrators uh, towards Kosovo in order for us to be able to hold the fair process of the trial for the perpetrators of these horrendous right, crimes. Right. How do you rebuild communities after so many people have been wiped out, whose families have been de targeted and destroyed? How do you rebuild these communities? What's the secret sauce to doing that? Uh, well, it is 
It's very daunting task, as I said uh, uh, in the very beginning, uh, because you don't only have uh, to deal with the survivor of the uh, sexual violence or the missing people, uh, but you have the entire family which bury the, the, the uh, consequences uh, 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 out of that, and the entire society by uh, default, by automatically uh, goes into that. And there is not a single formula that you can say that it can work here, it work it there, and it uh, by all means has to work here as well. Because I think I mentioned earlier that each and every country have their own specification, and they're starting from their uh, um, uh, ethical and moral norms and all the way down to the political uh, circumstances. And uh, so in our country, uh, maybe it was the openness of the people, and it was uh, that solidarity among our family, uh, not necessarily in the very beginning, but later on after understanding uh, that they have kind of like rallied uh, together, then institutional support, it is very crucial uh, to be able to uh, initiate these processes and to offer these platforms that you can be, uh, be able to build into this collective healing of the wounds of the war. And this cannot be done within a night. This takes years, this takes uh, decades. For us, it takes over 20 years, and I'm afraid it's going to take for another generation or two. So, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I'm going to end on a wonderful personal question. Um, you've overcome so many challenges, and did discrimination or even the obstacles on this issue, did you ever feel like giving up? And if so, what made you go on? <laughs> Um, by nature, I'm not a person that gives up very easily. I do not know an answer, no for an answer. There is always a way if there is a will, in a way. Yeah. And so I was lucky enough that uh, I was born in a family and I was raised in the family and I was always accompanied by the friends and the colleagues that has always encouraged me and supported me in the, uh, on the vision that I had uh, forward. And women and youth has been always uh, my weakest and my uh, most uh, uh, proudest element of my entire uh, career. And so they are the energy that does never allows me to give up on anything. So one sentence piece of advice to young women in this room about overcoming obstacles. Uh, going back to what I said in the very beginning is believing on themselves. Please believe in yourself. Believe in your potential because there is nothing in this world that you cannot do it. And never ever make compromise with the values and the things that you stand for. Madam President, beautiful words. <laughs> Thank you so much. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.